0: We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Well, I'm glad you're here this morning and uh, bright and early. I invite you to turn this morning to the book of Ephesians. We, uh, if you are uh, a regular on Sunday evenings, you'll know that uh, we started through Ephesians just last week, uh, more of an introduction than anything else. We didn't really dive into chapter one, although we did kind of a sampling throughout the whole book as we uh, considered what is Paul's purpose in writing the book of Ephesians. And we said this, that there was no particular issue that he was addressing, like perhaps we find in the, uh, the letters to the Corinthians, where there's a, re- it's a response to some problem, some particular sin issue that's going on in the church, some doctrinal matter uh, that may be going on, false teachers are infiltrating, but that's not uh, particularly the case here as far as we can understand in the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter. Uh, but rather it's uh, perhaps we could say more preventative just putting out the truth of God's word in order to uh, mitigate the possibility of error along the way and to encourage the believers. Uh, But we did say that doesn't mean there's, you know, it's just uh, anything and everything. There is still a unifying theme that runs throughout the book of Ephesians, and that is the theme of unity, the unity that we find in Christ, in Christ's work on the cross. And so Along with that, then, we also um, determined... Excuse me, let me... My notes here. Can't seem to locate them right now. (laughs) There they are. We, um, in looking at the book last time, we divided it into two main parts, and that is chapters 1 to 3, and chapters 4 through 6. There seems to be a major... Uh, major shift at the end of chapter 3 into chapter 4. In fact, just look there for a moment. Um, Paul begins chapter 4 with these words, I therefore, therefore being a, a key word there, word of transition, the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And we'll look at that even calling here this morning in chapter 1. And so there's a shift between what Paul has been saying in chapters 1 to 3 and 4 to 6, particularly chapters 1 to 3 describe the unity of Jews and Gentiles in the church established by Christ. And so what was once, you know, just Israel... And God's chosen people there, and as we see in the Old Testament, we find now that God is including the Gentiles in his redemptive plan, bringing them together, not making two separate churches, two different entities, but one body in Christ. And then chapters 4 through 6 describe how this unity is to then affect our interpersonal relationships. If we are one body in Christ, what does that look like? What should that look like in our individual relationships, uh, within the marriage relationship, between master and servant, between uh, the church and one another in the church, and Paul talks about these various areas of life in the latter part of, of the letter. But uh, we begin this morning uh, by looking at the first section we find in chapter 1, which is really Ephesians 1, uh, 1 to 14. We're not going to cover all of that by any stretch of the imagination this morning, Really, my focus, our focus here this morning is verses 1 through 6. And 1 to th- 2 is really just the, the typical introduction we find often from the apostles as they write these letters, and uh, really Paul in most of the letters. And uh, Paul begins by saying this in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, and faithful in Christ Jesus. So it's not hard for us to identify who the author is, though some try to debate it. It's very clearly stated here that Paul is the one writing. And he describes himself or further uh, ex- explains who he is in this that he calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. The word apostle, uh, in its very generic form and use, is simply a messenger. But it can be used in a more specific way to describe someone who was called by Christ, commissioned by Christ, to be a uh preacher of truth, one who had witnessed Christ, an eyewitness of Christ, the eyewitness of the resurrected Christ, had followed Christ, knew Christ. And we find, of course, you know, the, the uh twelve or maybe you know, we might say thirteen uh apostles, including Paul. Um so that's the kind of apostle that Paul is uh, is describing himself as, which then further authenticates what he's about to say. You know, he's not just a nobody, he's a somebody, he's, a, he's an apostle, he's one with authority. And so the churches that receive this letter are to listen and take heed. Uh, he further calls himself one who is an apostle by the will of God. What does that mean? Well, I think it simply has to do with the fact that Paul is not uh, self-authenticating himself. He didn't place himself in this position of authority, but rather he is one who has been called by God in, in due time, in where other scriptures uh, describe it that way. You know, kind of a latecomer to the scene, but not, doesn't make him less important. Uh, but uh, he was called by God, and we find that further described in Galatians chapter 1. And then we find the, uh, the uh, recipient's stated in verse the last part of verse one he says to the saints who are in Ephesus now, if you recall last time if you were here Sunday evening, uh, I made the argument that i don't think that this letter was intended just for one particular church um, we don't we didn't see the kind of mega churches we see today in the first century, rather you know ephesus uh I think Pastor and I determined there was roughly 500,000 in the first century who lived in Ephesus. So, roughly a half a million people. I I highly doubt that it was one particular church, rather, a number of house churches throughout the city of Ephesus where believers would gather. You know, the kind of uh, convenience and travel we have today is not what they had today. In fact, you, you would find the same, it's similar if you were to go down to South America. Uh, when I spent some time down there in one of the larger cities, Antofagasta, to come to church took an hour or more of bus riding just to get there. And so one service was really all they could do, you know, to ask them to travel an hour, stay for an hour or two, travel another hour home, and then, you know, two hours, three hours later do the same thing again. is just too much. And so, you know, and that's with buses, you know. So think in the first century, you know, to travel a mile or two, uh would not be easy, and so um, probably there was a number of house churches. So this is not written to one particular church, and in fact, it may have spread beyond Ephesus. This may have been uh, this letter probably circulated through a number of churches in Asia Minor. So you know, upwards of who knows, you know, maybe dozens or more of churches who would read read this letter, and of course, then it was preserved, and we have it today. Uh, but that said, keep in mind that this is not one particular congregation that Paul is writing to, but a number of churches uh, who would receive this and be edified by it. Now, the word saints, I think uh, we are, we're common with this terminology. Uh, don't get confused. This isn't talking about any particular you know, people in the church, but all of God's people. We are all saints, uh, that is, holy ones, the ones set apart for God. And so, you know, we're not like the Catholic Church in that way, you know, who ascribe that title to certain, you know, historical, biblical figures. We are all saints in Christ. And so Paul is writing to believers who are faithful in Christ Jesus, that is, those who have believed in Christ, who are walking uh, in obedience to Christ Paul then goes on to say in verse 2, his typical kind of greeting here, an introduction, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I often love to use that greeting. Sometimes I'll use that at the end of an email or something like that, some communication um, to say, grace be to you. God is uh, about doing that, is he not? Giving us his grace, lavishing it upon you, giving us peace, of course, that kind of uh, you know, positional peace we have in God, having been re- reconciled to Him, but also the kind of peace that He gives us on a daily basis as we look to Him, as we pray to Him, and He promises us, promises us to to have that peace. But then, really, the focus of our time this morning then is verses three through six, where Paul gets into what we would typically think would be an introduction, a typical form in Pat, Paul's letters, but really. Paul kind of uh, puts aside the introduction for a moment and doesn't start that until verse 15. Rather, he begins with, with, uh, with a praise, an extended blessing, uh, praising God for what he has done in saving us. And so the truth that I want us to learn this morning and, and uh, to see in this text, really verses 1 to 14, but just looking at this uh, first section this morning, is this that God deserves our praise for his saving work in Christ and by the Spirit to bless us with every spiritual blessing. So God deserves our praise for his saving work in Christ and by the Spirit to bless us with every spiritual blessing. And so let me read this morning verses 3 all the way through 14, but then we'll look at 3 to 6 in our time here. Paul begins with this word of exaltation to God, saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons By Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace, which He made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will. "...according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ Uh, a lot that Paul is saying, describing about God's saving work and how that has been accomplished. And uh, if you uh, have any kind of Greek familiarity, and you will know that uh, Ephesians one three through fourteen is actually one very, very, very long sentence. And maybe you kind of feel that even in the uh, in the English translation, that's just like. You know, go on and on and on and on and even you know the beginning of sentences are really like prepositional phrases and that's because what the English translators have tried to do is say you know this is this is quite complicated to for the English reader to understand especially when we're translating from Greek to English and so they've broken it into multiple sentences to, to help us kind of swallow it better but that's why we find even some of these. Um, these sentences beginning with prepositional phrases, because really they're, they're continuing uh, you know, clauses, prepositional phrases, uh, uh, that kind of thing. And this makes it challenging to determine the relationship between the numerous you know, clauses and phrases, but it's not impossible. But I think in part, this compounding effect of clauses and phrases as difficult as it can be, you, know, to sentence diagram. Uh, We don't have any really students in here today, but maybe you remember doing that. You know, phrase diagramming, sentence diagramming. You know, how do these clauses relate to one another? I I hated that. It just was not fun at all. I've learned to uh, enjoy it more, I guess, through studying the original languages. But it makes it quite difficult to follow when you do that. But I think, in part, this compounding effect contributes to the exalted language of Paul in this opening section. Just one on top of another describing God's wonderful work and how he uh, he and, and, and the Son and the Spirit are working together in, in multiple ways uh, to accomplish God's eternal plan of saving his children. So this outburst of praise comes in the form then of an extended blessing, uh, what uh, we find in the Old Testament often called a berakah, Hebrew language there, which is uh, language that often, or sentences that often start with, bless the Lord. And then it goes on to say why we are to bless the Lord. We find this often in the Psalms, you know, bless the Lord for he has not you know forsaken me. He has heard my prayer, these kinds of things, ascribing praise to God. And actually, we find it uh, also in the New Testament in Luke chapter 1, uh, where, uh, you know, the prophet is ascribing praise uh, for seeing Jesus and what that means and bless the Lord. And so Paul is using similar language here Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, there in the beginning of verse 3. And really, verse 3 then marks the main sentence of this blessing or eulogy. The phrase, blessed be God, expresses a declaration. Blessed is God. It's uh, It's not really a request, per se. You know, we pray that God will be blessed, but no, it's a declaration. It's a statement. It's an outburst of praise, an extended blessing. God is blessed. He is blessed. In the Psalms and the New Testament, as we said, these expressions of praise are often followed by reasons for which God is blessed, why he is praiseworthy. And Paul then begins with one, by stating one generic reason why God is blessed or why he is to be exalted. Look with me at the uh, second part of verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So why does God deserve our praise? What does verse 3 tell us? Because he has, what, blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Just think about that for just a brief moment. God, in his redemptive work, in saving us, Uh, And planning all of this from eternity past has given us every, every, all spiritual blessings. Paul goes on to number or name a few of those spiritual blessings, but I don't even think this is an exhaustive list. It's, It's saying God has given you everything that you need, every spiritual blessing, everything beyond what we could imagine for us. But then yeah, he goes on, or let me focus just for a moment later uh, on verse three. He says, "For every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ." So the kind of blessings that Paul is talking about here are specifically spiritual blessings in nature. It's not just you know the general kind of you know well you know bless you you know and you know what exactly does that mean? But no, we're talking about spiritual blessings. That is, blessings that are uh, in the spiritual realm that proceed out of the Spirit of God that we enjoy. You know, what is the root of the word spiritual? It is what? Spirit, right? These are spiritual blessings, those that are experienced by the working of God's Spirit in us. And these are spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. What exactly does that mean in the heavenly places? Does that mean that they are blessings that we will experience one day in heaven? You know, as if they're they're out of reach, per, you know, per se, and you know they're they're out there, but they're not for us right now. No, uh, that's not what Paul is saying here. What I believe to him to be saying is that these are spiritual blessings whose source are in heaven. They come from heaven from God. These blessings come down upon us, they are shed upon us, they are given to us. They come from heaven. They are heavenly in origin. God is operating in a way in which we then can receive those blessings. Finally, he ends verse 3 by saying in Christ. And uh perhaps somewhat uh Distant from where this prepositional phrase is is uh, placed, the in Christ really applies to every spiritual blessing, not particularly the in, in heavenly places. so in other words, Paul is saying, uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us uh, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, so it 's really kind of far away from the blessing but really that's what it means and how does that you know what does that mean exactly well it's because without the work of Christ on the cross how could we receive those blessings and so it's in Christ because of Christ that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places well paul then goes on to describe you know what are these spiritual blessings there are many And he begins by giving us just a few, and we'll focus on just the ones here in verses 4 through 6. Number one, one of the spiritual blessings that we enjoy and for which we should praise God is that he has chose us. He has chosen us. Look with me at verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world just as he chose us in him. Now, what is the uh, little quiz here? What is the antecedent of him here in verse 4? Can you track it back? Who is the him? Is it God the Father? Is it Christ? Dan's nodding his head for the latter. I think that's true. It's Christ. So he has chose us In him, the him being Christ. So so who is the he then? Maybe I did it backwards. We should have maybe started with that. But who is the he? God the Father, right? So God the Father, he has chose us in his son, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. So we, we want to make sure, you know, especially in these long sentences where, you know, I didn't even do this. You could do it, not right now. Go through and, and uh, note how many pronouns are used, you know, him, he, him, he. You know, it's like you have to, you have to track carefully uh, in order to understand, you know, is this God the Father acting? Is it, uh, is it Christ who is accomplishing something? And so that would be a good exercise for us to do, not just in the moment, but we'll do it as we get to it. So God the Father has chose us in him before the foundation of the world. What does it mean that he chose us? Well, I think this has to do with the, the doctrine of election, in which God chooses from eternity past. And this choosing, then, is not something that can, is coerced by human will. You know, it's done before the foundation of the world, before you existed. You know, you didn't strong-arm God into choosing you. This is something that he does of his own will. Which really should cause us to praise him even further because there's nothing we have done already for him to say, yes, I'm going to merit you my favor. He did it out of his own will, out of his own grace. This choosing often used in the New Testament is not just kind of a, an abstract or very kind of uh, uh, disconnected kind of thing. It is an interrelational kind of thing. It is a personal kind of thing that God has done. He has chosen us to have a relationship with him. You know, it's not kind of just like putting the, his hand you know, over his eyes and, you know, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. but there is, there is a real relationship in choosing those whom he has. And so he has chosen us in Christ. In Christ, because it is the work of Christ that allows uh, us to be redeemed, to be a part of his family. And all of this done is done, we find, before the foundation of the world. God in eternity past decreed. Within that decree there was a, a choosing of those who would be saved, so that even Before you were born, God knew you in a special way, a saving kind of way, that is, that he would save you at the appropriate and exact time that he had planned. But for what purpose did he do all of this? God acted, he chose in Christ before the foundation of the world you, those who are saved. But for what purpose did he choose you? What does the end of verse 4 tell us? That we would be holy and without blame before him in love. We're not just chosen in order to be saved. That is, of course, a part of it, to be reconciled to God. But we have been chosen in order that we be holy and blameless. That's something impossible without God's work happening first. You can try all you want to be holy and without blame before him in love, but you can't do it without him having first chosen you and saved you. You find that in the world today, you know, people uh, all trying to merit God's favor and, and, and you know, choose the way they, they try to do it. There's a number of ways, but without God working in you first, you cannot be holy and without blame before him. So he has chosen us so that we should be holy and without blame. Now, of course, when we are saved, God does regenerate, or his spirit regenerates us. He does make us right before God. The righteousness of God is imputed to our account so that, you know, judiciously we, judiciously, we stand before God having being made righteous. We are righteous in his sight. But I think this extends beyond just that kind of positional uh, aspect to the experiential, that we uh, we are called to be holy and without blame before him, so that how we operate in the Christian faith should be one of blamelessness and holiness before him. And before we say, you know, that's impossible, it's not. God is given us the ability. He has freed us from the bondage of sin. He has given us new life so that we can be holy. You know, we're told in other portions of Scripture, be holy, for I am holy. God will not give us a command that we cannot follow, right? He gives us the power to be able to do that. Not perfectly, but we should be ever progressing in our holiness and blamelessness before him. In love. The in love, again, you know, how does this fit in? I think what Paul is saying here is that the kind of holiness and blamelessness that we are to do and to act in before Him is not just to be, you know, robotic. It is to be out of a love for Him. It is to be done in love for Christ. In what Christ has done for us, it's very easy for us to kind of come and do our thing here at church. Say, well, I've, I've come, you know, that makes me more holy, right? More blameless. I've, you know, I serve in some capacity. And so, you know, that's got to count for something, right? And yes, I would say it does. Coming is important. But if it's not done in love for Christ, then, then what is, why is it being done at all? It's probably being done so that you feel better about yourself. Say, you know, I've, I've done my thing rather than I'm doing this to serve my lord and savior. And so we need to be careful about, you know, why are we doing what we're doing? Don't be mindlessly just doing things, but do it out of love, in love for him. Paul then goes on in verse 5 to say this, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. So not only has God chose us before the foundation of the world, but we also find that uh, this is accomplished in part by the fact that he has predestined us to adoption. To adoption as sons by Jesus Christ. Now, when we think about the idea of predestination, again, God has predestined all things to happen according to his will. You know, not just saving work, but all of how things operate in this world from beginning to end. God has predestined certain things to take place. Nothing is outside of His sovereign hand. He has, you know, orchestrated all of these things. But in, but also He has predestined uh, our salvation. Those whom He has chosen, and a part of that predestination is His work of adoption. The work of adoption. Don't uh, don't miss what Paul is saying here in a cor- in in, uh, in relationship to this adoption idea. If you were adopted, what were you before you were adopted? Were you a part of the pa- family? No, you were outside the family. You were orphans, we might say. Really, you are sons of someone else. First John talks about this. Sons of Satan, of the devil. And so you have been taken from that realm, the realm of Satan, and you have been put into another realm, the realm of Christ, into the family of God. He has adopted you into his family. Think about uh, perhaps you know someone that's been adopted. Maybe this analogy isn't perfect, but bear with me. Someone who's been adopted... You know, was it by their own choosing? Not really. Someone, out of their own kindness of their heart and grace and mercy, came in and said, there's a child who needs needs the comfort of a father and a mother, who needs provided for, who needs help. And they choose that child out of their own grace and kindness. That's... It's kind of a similar but maybe not perfect analogy of the kind of adopting work that God has done. God is that Father who looks into the world, says, I have chosen you, I'm going to put you in my family with all of its spiritual blessings. He sought you, the orphan, and accomplished the adoption by the work of Christ Jesus. Sending his son to die on the cross so that it would be possible, made possible, to adopt us into his family. This adoption was part of his predestined plan from eternity past. And uh, in the context here, predestination, as we've already said, amounts uh, to the same as what we call the doctrine of election Although, as we said, predestination is more than that. You know, it's all of the things that God has orchestrated and is doing in, in the world. So what does is, what is adoption here accomplish? You know, It sounds nice in terms, I've been adopted, but what does is, what is that accomplish? Well, look what Paul says here. Having predestined us to adoption as what? Sons. We are adopted as sons. The adoption that Paul is describing here places each and every believer into the family of God as as adult sons of God. And Galatian talks talks more about this, and we did we uh, we did study through that a, a while ago. We're not just simply talking about you know uh, maybe in the historical sense, you know, little children running around who are kind of you know under uh, you know really have no responsibility, no, uh, none of the inheritance yet, so to speak. But we're talking about fully adopted, fully vested adult sons of God, those who are heirs of God's eternal blessings and inheritance. In, uh, it is this uh, ultimate standing that is emphasized with adoption here that uh we are we are adult sons of God with all of its attendant blessings and inheritance now adoption that is placing us in the standing of a son is is not the same as for instance uh justification which secures that righteous standing or other doctrines like regeneration or spirit baptism it's different although it is done Uh, at the same time, instantaneously, at salvation. Uh, Rather, adoption here is that work in which God, through the Spirit, places us into his family and gives us these eternal and spiritual blessings. Just uh, think about it for a moment uh, really adoption itself is positional it's placing us into the body of Christ into his family it's not necessarily experiential in the sense of when you're adopted you feel some kind of change you know that's that is true of regeneration in which we we have been imparted new life but it's really a positional thing you've been placed into God's family but then, from that moment on, we do begin to experience the blessings of adoption. Note, again, that this adoption is by Jesus Christ. There is no hope without Christ, without his work on the cross. Notice, as well, that not only is it, does it happen in Christ, or by Christ, But also what? According to the good pleasure of what? His will. So we're adopted by Christ according to the good pleasure of his will. That is the motivation behind all of this. According to the good pleasure of his will. This kind of harkens back to what we said earlier that, you know, God is not coerced into saving anyone. He is not uh, required to save any particular person. Why does he do it? Why has God saved us? Why is he saving people? It's because he's doing it out of his good pleasure. Out of his good pleasure. You know, We could try to get into all of that and understand, You know, why is that his good pleasure? Why is he doing this? But I think we simply just say it's because that's what he has desired. And it brings him glory. That's why. It brings him glory. It brings him praise. As we look and evaluate ourselves and say there's no real good reason, except that it brings God praise to reconcile people to himself and demonstrate his power and his ability to do this through the work of his son. And that's what really Paul says. Look at the end of, uh, of, or into verse 6. So let me begin in verse 5. That helps us kind of follow through here. Having predestined us to the adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. So that's, that's the result in all of this. Why is he doing it? Because it's his good pleasure what is it accomplishing? For what result? What purpose? To the praise of the glory of his grace, or some translations have it, uh, to the praise of his glorious grace. And so as we, as we evaluate and understand how God is operating from eternity past to choose us, to predestine us for salvation, it should cause us to say, praise God's glorious grace. Praise his glorious grace. In that sense, the focus here isn't really even the spiritual blessings themselves, which we get to enjoy, but it's his grace that we're praising. His grace, the bigger picture. That grace, we find, Paul says, has been bestowed upon us. He says uh, in verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Other translations perhaps make it a little bit clearer. Really what Paul is saying is the grace that he has bestowed upon us in his beloved. Who is the beloved here? It's Christ. 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 We have been the grace that he has bestowed upon us in Christ, or because of what Christ has done. Without the work of Christ on the cross, we would not uh, be able to be recipients of that grace. God is, is glorious in every respect. But the particular aspect of his essence that Paul is thinking about is his graciousness and how his graciousness moved him to save men. In the end, then, salvation is not necessarily, as we said, about the spiritual blessings, although that's part of it. It's about magnifying God and giving praise to him. That's how it starts, right? Remember, we said the main action, the main Uh, focus of this section here is the beginning of verse 3, which is, Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we conclude here this morning, let us remind ourselves that it is God's unmerited favor that he has poured out in huge measure on every believer with every spiritual blessing. I trust uh, as we close, you will consider this great idea that without God's grace, we would not be favored. We would not be adopted. We would not be chosen. We would not be in Christ. May that uh, cause us to praise him even this morning. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord. This morning we ask that our hearts be like Paul's, that just bursts out in praise. As we consider every spiritual blessing that we have received, perhaps some that we don't even realize or have yet to experience, but we do know this, that as Paul has told us, some of them being that you have chosen us, have adopted us, have predestined us, have shed your grace upon us according to the good pleasure of your will. And so we say this simply, blessed is God. May his name be praised. We pray in Christ's name, amen.